just past 7 o'clock, and here we go on a Monday night. It's time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo and Ira. A lot of people decided, you know, after the Super Bowl, they kind of take a sports vacation. They get out of it for a little while, catch up, maybe start getting ready for spring training, baseball, um, jump into the basketball in midseason, but not you. Uh, there's no quit for Ira, and of course you were on the move again this week, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah, I went to the. Uh, I didn't like spend the whole weekend watching The Crown or anything. I went to uh, <laughs> watching binge watching. No, I, I, one of my dreams, like one of the bucket list things, was Daytona 500. It's like one of those things I've never been to. I've only been to one other NASCAR race, mm -hmm. and it, it was just a slow sports weekend. I'm thinking, what a perfect time to go up to Daytona 500. So yeah. it was. What an experience. I mean, it, it didn't end until 12.30 last night and whatever, but it was great. It's so exciting. I can't wait to talk all about it. Uh, it's going to be a really fun show. In addition to two great guests, we're hoping we have Greg Allman um, getting on the line. He uh, writes for The Athletic. He's also the author of uh, Champa Bay. He's going to tell us all about the Bucks and uh, their season and everything that's been going on there. Ira, he should be great. Yeah, great. The book is amazing. If the pictures, I'm going to post on uh, Ira on Sports on Facebook, Twitter, mm -hmm. and Instagram some of my great pictures from the game. But this book has even better pictures than I do. And it's just a, it's one of those flash books that comes out right after it. But you go to the bookstores and buy it. And if you're a big Tampa Bay fan, it's like a must-have, really. Because yeah. I have, like, every Steeler book they have. Those, <laughs> I have those. Uh, that's Greg Allman supposed to be joining us at 7.15. We're still uh, waiting to hear if he's 100%, but we're hoping we can get him on. And then we have a great guest. He, we've had him on the show before, Justin Watson. Uh, tell us a little bit about him because he's got a lot to be celebrating right now. Yeah, he's the wide receiver for Tampa Bay. Uh, he started the year as playing, actually, almost starting for the team. And then... And I worked on special teams as the season went on, but he's been with Tampa Bay for a couple years and uh, was part of the celebration, can give some insight into being a wide receiver, what he did with Tom Brady and learning how to the system and can't wait to have him on the show. We've actually, we've had him on the show before. We did pre-tape this because he's been busy. So it was great. We got to hear, you know, some of the football aspect, but then also some of the fun aspect of what they were doing as they wrapped up a Super Bowl win. Justin Watson of the Tampa Bay Bucks joining us right around 740. So I, we got to talk about it. Daytona, I think is uh, not just you. I think this is a lot of people's bucket list it's considered the super bowl of racing and it's kind of i think the fanfare and everything that goes on it kind of takes over that entire city whatever you think of daytona there's only one thing you think of it's the daytona 500 so let's talk about uh, how you got there and what the process was because i think a lot of people would like to do this one day well, I got a ticket. Um, I bought the tickets before because I had no idea what the situation was with the COVID rules they have. The, it seats 180,000. They only had 30,000 there. But it was like asking a lot of people around, like, where do you park? What do I do? So it was good. I got parking before, and my parking was great. I parked really? right behind for like 70 bucks, parked right next to the, to the 500, to the whole stadium. And... Uh, there wasn't much traffic. I, I said, I got to get there early because I have no idea. And I drove about 1230. And I'm telling you, if anyone is ever going to go to the Daytona 500, you have to leave early because I actually hit some traffic. And there's only a few oh, people going there because it's like in the middle of shopping centers. It's like right here out in West Palm <laughs> Beach. And there's like a Walmart. Next to the outlets. Yes, yeah. and there's all these things. And it's like to turn it in, I go, there's the 500. Like some of these uh, race, some of these um, uh, tracks are in the middle of nowhere, like yeah. Kansas City and the one in Kentucky. Bristol and Tennessee. There's nothing around. Nothing around. Yeah. Parking lot. This thing is like people are parking in parking lots of shopping centers and everything and walking around and over. So it's that was one thing is you get there early. I got there super early and then I walked in and it's an older type of stadium. It's not, it's like more of a college football stadium. It reminded me of Penn State and there's three levels. Everybody, four, actually four levels. Mm -hmm. The second is really not much and there's a main level. I would say go on the third level. So I was like at the 339, the third level, not the fourth. And uh, in a section that is like there's this VIP section. 
and I was sort of like in the middle where the VIP section was, sort of on the other side. I wasn't in the VIP section, but it was right next to it. It was so funny. It's like one of these rules that you couldn't go into the VIP section by go just walking across, but you could go down one floor and go up, and then you're in it. <laughs> so so it's like one of those. But there really was, I like the fact that there was a lot of merchandise stores that you would expect at NASCAR. The food selections were horrendous. I think I was there for whatever. I got there at 12 and left at 12, 12 hours, and I had like pizza, cold pizza. That was one piece. <laughs> that was all I had the whole time. So it wasn't really good with that. But I did like the fact is when you go into the seats and you go, I mean, this track was built in 1950. You know, this was the 63rd running. You think about these things that have been around for like 120. It's not that old. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just the 63rd running. But the way they made it with a tri-oval, which makes it great because then with the banking on the turns three and turns two, you're able to see the race. And the view was amazing. And I, that's when I walked out. That was what I was most impressed with, even though underneath it was pretty junky. It was not as modern as I expected. So you're used to these more modern stadiums. Mm-hmm. When you come out there, it's on a high slope so everybody can see. If Shaquille O'Neal was sitting in front of me, I'd see over his head. <laughs> and then when you get there, the first impression is, where's the road? Like, where's the track? It is so small. I mean, on TV, it looks big. Yeah. But when you're there, it just looks like a two-lane highway out here. I, swear, I don't. <laughs> they're going 200 miles an hour. I have no idea how they do this. It's just unbelievable. And then the pit row is right there. So, like, I'm sitting in a seat. And that's the one thing about this is everyone said, you got to be in a start-finish line. You really were. I sat, which was more down to turn four, which is near the turn four. I like that seat because I could see turn four and turn one. And you really can sit anywhere and have this great view of the track. And unlike horse races that I've been to, all the Belmonts and the whatever, where you can't follow around, I could follow all the cars. Go, they're all colorful. If you're colorblind, it's a little hard to walk yeah. <laughs> But I could follow the cars the whole way around the track. And they had three screens. And they put like fountains and trees that you see in these horse racing where you can't see. I just felt like it was easy to follow it and, every, and go around. So that from that aspect, and then watching the pit, you can see them right going to pit row, working on the cars, come out, the garages are right there. So from that aspect and with the screens there, it's so easy. And that's why everybody who goes there really has a good view. I mean, don't say someone said, oh, I have to spend a million dollars to get the best seat. This is like going to a golf tournament. Like there's really no bad seat if you're following a golfer. No, absolutely. It makes sense. I'm looking at the aerial view now. I can picture right right where you were. What were they doing attendance-wise? I mean, I know um, – I'm guessing that's Brevard County. I don't know. I'm sure their regulations aren't like South Florida though. It was 30,000. But I again, everyone says, oh, it's so nervous. It's a super spread. Look, again, there was hardly anybody there. It seemed empty. I mean, this thing seats 180. There's only 30. So it was very empty, very. And uh, but there was no they did not have the cardboard cutouts like they did in the other places. But I was the only person in my row. There was no one behind me, no one in front of me. And remember, the race was on a six, almost a six hour delay. So three, four, about five hours and 15 minutes. So at 30, what were you doing that? Whole time? <laughs> well, first of all, I sat I went inside and then I I went out. It was it was raining, not raining, and I'm listening to like the golf tournament and I'm texting and everything. But it was like it was I, it went pretty fast because it was just neat to sit there because it wasn't raining the whole time and it took some time to dry the dry the track out. So I just came back out and just sat. It's beautiful. I mean, I could sit in Daytona 500. That's a, it's just a beautiful stadium. It's bright and it was just it was I loved it. It was very nice. So I, I think this won't be your uh, your last Daytona 500. No, no, no. I, I I absolutely loved it and I thought that was like you know I thought that was one of the key things in terms of going forward. It was just so much fun to. Be be there and you have to wear something to cover your ears i don't know how anybody goes to this it is so loud because i wore
before, so I listened to the tra- the race on my radio. Mm-hmm. You have to do that because it gives you updates and what's Otherwise, going on. Otherwise, yeah, you got nothing. <laughs> and then and then I wore and then I had these big. They bought these like like uh, earmuffs. These mm-hmm. these that put the death and like so you no, know, I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't talk to anyone. But it it down it drowned out the noise. But if you took when I took it off, it was so loud. Like that was crazy. But I oh, I definitely sure. you have to have I, the people that were sitting there without anything in their ears. I don't know how they do it. I just have no clue. So you said um, we just started in uh, 1959. What else is what else should we know about the history here? Well, I think the one thing is that they took to make it banked. That's what makes it so cool. Is yeah, that, is being it, able to see from everywhere is huge. Yeah. So to look to have this, when, and then you look at how are they, how are they ride, driving like on these high banks? They actually created a pond in the middle by taking all the the soil, like two point five million whatever yards of sand, and then they are uh, soil, and they made those the bank to, to make it bank like that. So that, I think that's what was really cool in terms of the high banked and, and and those things. But the trioval aspect of it was the cool thing, and everything they talk about is trioval. And it's trioval this because it's sort of like an oval but then has like the little triangle mm-hmm. right where so it lets everybody it was just built per, it's like almost stadium golf like the players just built for that uh, yeah no it, it seems perfect and now you've got me wanting to go to a daytona <laughs> 500 um let's talk more about it i mean th- th- there's definitely some storylines here yeah i mean certainly it was the 20 year anniversary of dale Earnhardt's death and i mean it's really a very significant um, um, moment i mean what other sport had their star player die in action I, yeah. it's, it, it, to think i that, still remember it like it was yesterday yeah i mean it was and it was one of those where nine drivers were killed between 89 and 2001 he was the fourth he was the fourth driver in nine months that had died in the race and after he died everything changed in NASCAR because after he died in the race, then they put all the safety, there's not been one driver's died since then. So all the things with the the, uh, devices, with the soft walls, and you see all these bad accidents and these drivers are just walking out of it because the cars are so safe, the walls are so safe. I mean, it's amazing that like Ryan Newman would have died last year when you saw that terrible car accident he was in. But so I think that was, that was the main storyline. And they made a big deal about it, but when I was there at the race, the nice thing they did on the third lap, they uh, everybody raised three up and they put three everywhere, and that was sort of honor. But mm-hmm. I didn't see more memorabilia for three for Earnhardt. Like it was that from that aspect, I wasn't seeing the fans. I thought were quiet for there were a few of them, and maybe I just didn't have that. And I also I had the earmuffs on, so maybe mm-hmm. I didn't hear as well. <laughs> but then the other thing was Denley Hanlon was going for his third straight Daytona. No one's ever done that before, and so he was going for his third straight uh, Daytona race. And then Bubba Wallace, the the twenty three car owned by Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin uh, was was in the race. So it was pretty cool that Michael Jordan was there. And then Pitbull with, had a car. Uh, Daniel Suarez was driving, <laughs> so he was there, and he actually gave the um, the opening. And it, the, the drivers parade before was a, it was okay. The drivers come out of their car and they drive it around. That was mm-hmm. okay. But the Thunderbirds. Now remember, the Thunderbirds are based in Daytona, so they're there. They they the, the airport is right next to the track, so you can see them taking off. They come out, they take off, and then they come back. That what they did. I've been to races. I mean, not races. I've been to sporting events. I've never seen the Thunderbirds do like a whole aerial show, like right when they were going, mm-hmm. like Pitbull saying started, and they're flying out of nowhere. That's I, mean, cool. I screamed. I thought the Thunderbird was coming right towards me. <laughs> it was insane. Like it was crazy with the thunder with that and the. With the with, uh, but I just thought the Thunderbirds were were tremendous. But uh, no, from that perspective, that was. I mean, those were the main storylines. Was the fact that it was the Dale Earnhardt's uh, twenty year anniversary. Denny Hamlin going for three, and then the. Whole Bubba Wallace and the new drivers and the new I think that's what's creating the excitement when you see and and it's one thing about 
Like, I don't know, like, I think NASCAR's hurt because it's Tony Stewart, the Jeff Gordons, they've all retired. And so it's like, who's the new names? And some people, some names aren't. And that's what's fun about this race is you can actually go and say, okay, I'm going to follow Bubba Wallace. I'm going to see what yeah. he does in a race. Or Danny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick. Like, I'm going to follow a couple of drivers, the color scheme, so I can see where they are. And like, why are they pitting? Why are they doing this? So when you're following it at the race, it's easier to, like, you can see it. That's why you got to, you can't just like, I mean, you asked me, there were 40 drivers in the race. If you said name the other 30, I probably couldn't name 30 and what their color schemes were. But just by looking at the drivers that I was focused on, then that kept your interest in and knowing what's going on. It, no, it is, it is very cool stuff. And I think you're right. I do think the field has been a little bit muddied over the last five or six years where you, you know maybe the top 10, like you said, but it's hard to keep up with all these guys. I'm glad you were able to do it in person. Uh, you're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We should have Greg Allman of The Athletic on here in just a moment. So uh, why don't you tell us about how the race actually went? Well, um, the first thing was that in lap 14, there was an accident on turn three. So they only ran like 14 laps. And uh, Denny, Denny Hamlin, you heard it. He, he was running and he was like, so he's the f- favorite in the race and he was going for his third. And he's back in the back of the pack. And, and, I, and they said, well, why is he just hanging back? He goes, I think there's going to be an accident coming. And right after the announcer said that, he said that he, there, he heard his, over the radio that announcer was coming, there was this humongous accident. Christopher Bell hit Eric Amarillo, who then hit Alex Bowman. 16 cars damaged. Many were in the mud. It was a total disaster in terms of what happens. And uh, the pole sitter, Alex Bowman, was knocked out. Ryan Newman was knocked out. And so it just stopped. And then at that right, like after that, then there was lightning within eight miles and they stopped the race. So you had 16 cars all smashed up. The cars are stopped. When they go to a a stop, they just stop everything and just totally stopped in the race. Well, this should, uh, gives us a good point to stop now. We'll continue with this here on Iron Sports, but it's time to go to Greg Allman of The Athletic, also the author of Champa Bay. Greg, uh, welcome so much to Iron Sports. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hope you guys are doing well. <laughs> Greg, we're just talking about the Daytona 500. This is Ira. I was at uh, Super Bowl last week in Daytona this week, so a lot of excitement here down in uh, Florida. Yeah, no, busy week. Lots going on there for sure. It, it seems like it just goes from one thing to the other right now, the way it's going in the States. So I read your book, Champ A. Um, everybody should get it. Let me let the, the, my listeners know how it is one of those flashbooks that comes out. The picture, you have stories about interesting stories, and also you have some of the best pictures I've ever seen, football pictures. I mean, these were just tremendous pictures. Yeah, really happy, happy with the way it came together. It, it's wild how quickly they can put these books together. Uh, you got a championship game, and, and less than a week later, it, it's in stores. Uh, but it was really neat to have it come together. Lots of great stories. This is the kind of season you want to write a book about, and, and Joey Johnson and I had a great time doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those. Just it, I just I enjoyed looking at the pictures. It's like one of those books when you look at the pictures, you like spend time like analyzing the pictures and the feelings because like, you hadn't seen these pictures before. So I think it's like the, it, for people who are like, I don't want to read a 200, 300-page book about Tampa Bay, it's mostly pictures and with some stories, and the stories are really illuminating about that. And uh, one of the stories, one of the aspects of the Tampa Bay uh, that you talked about was the general manager, uh, Jason Light, in terms of what kind of team. And I don't think he gets another, enough credit for building this team in terms of the draft picks from Vita Vea, Ronald Jones, uh, Carlton Davis, and then Devin White, Sean Murphy Bunning. And even you went over Tristan Wirth and, and Anton Winfield. I mean, just perfect. He's just drafted well and then signed great free agents. And it just doesn't seem like he's getting the credit for, for building this team that Brady wanted to go to. Yeah, I mean, there was a long time where people weren't sure if he should even be back. You know, I mean, not a lot of GMs get to go through multiple head coaches and go five, six years without making the playoffs. Um, and to the Glazers' credit, I mean, there, there's not a lot of patience in the world of pro sports these days. Um, you know, obviously he helped them get Bruce Arians, and then he helped them get Tom Brady. And that's 
that's probably the two biggest pieces of this puzzle in terms of the team coming together. Um, like you said, has really hit well in his draft picks. We were just looking at the 2018 draft today. Um, you get five starters from that draft. You know, did some really, really smart work to trade down and pick up some picks, and then really hit on them. I mean, that's the other thing. It, it, it's one thing to get draft picks, but you really got to make the most of them and hit them. And they certainly did that on their first two picks this year to to get two rookies who could step in on both sides of the ball, like you said, and Tristan Wirfs and, and Antoine Winfield. Yeah, really neat to we see see a way it came together. And obviously, um, you know, Jason has been here longer than just about everybody in a football standpoint, so he could definitely appreciate how far they've come. And then you just mentioned about getting Bruce Arians to be the coach. I mean, he was in retirement from the Cardinals and somehow convincing him. And I, I mean, it wasn't one of those universal things where everyone said, well, that's the perfect choice. I mean, it's like, is he too old? Is this not the right thing for him? Is it just a rebuilding? But it was, a br- of course, as it looks now, a brilliant move on the part of Jason's part. Yeah, I mean, I think the main concern was just the age and just the natural. Everyone talked about Father Time being undefeated. I mean, there's never been a full-time 43-year-old starting quarterback in the NFL for a full season. So to see him not only not drop off, but to really bounce back incredibly well. I mean, 40 touchdowns in the regular season, that's the second most in his career in 21 years. And then, you know, to have a postseason like he did with 10 more touchdowns, um, you know, really stepped up and limited his mistakes. That's probably the biggest area where they took a step forward is just not having so many interceptions, not having so many turnovers. And the rest of the team was better as a result of that, for sure. And then you highlighted in the book about Levante David, who sort of comes on this defense not talked about, but setting that tone in September in terms of he was the uh, the player defensive player of the year for the month. But just he's been the guy there the longest, you know, preceding everybody. But his ability to just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, sometimes, you look, the team's changing. You've been here, I think, was it how many years? You know, number of years. And some of these veterans are like, you know, move on. But he stayed with the team and, and embraced the new veterans and also worked with all these young players that brought in. Yeah, Levante, more than anybody else, you really appreciated how much it meant to get to win this. You know, that just you think about the rookies to get to do this in their first season. This is year nine for him, you know, really put in the time. It's hard to go nine years in one place in the NFL without making a playoff game. And he hadn't known that until this year. So it was neat that when you talk about Brady, I mean, I think one of the things that Brady was really motivated by, he's got so many rings, and it's been so long since he's been able to really introduce an entire room of people the joy of playing in the in the playoffs of football and playing in the Super Bowl and winning a Super Bowl and really was able to I think there's there's about six guys on this team that have won a Super Bowl before this year but the rest of the roster didn't know that and hadn't come close to that so to see them have that joy and to see Levante be able to to savor sticking around so long and kind of getting the fruit to that with a Super Bowl was really special. And one of those players you mentioned with the Super Bowl rings is Rob Gronkowski. And I don't know if you were the one to ask him the question when he said early in the year when he hadn't caught a lot of passes, he goes, I'm a blocking tight end. But he, and he said that, and people looked at it negatively. But when you look at the Super Bowl with Travis Kelsey, if you're the Chiefs fan, you would like Travis. I mean, as much as he's a Hall of Famer, going to be one of the greatest tight ends of all time, you, they needed a blocking tight end. When their offensive line was down, they needed a, They couldn't, because he doesn't block, that hurt them. So talk about a little about Gronkowski's just you know, total buy-in to the, what they were doing in Tampa Bay. Yeah, it was really neat to see how, how well Gronkowski just did whatever they asked. You know, I think he's so known for being a pass catcher. I mean, he caught more touchdowns in the 2010s than any player in the NFL. So to have him be a blocker, and early on I think some of that was just him kind of getting back into shape after being out of football for a year. But you think about the start of the playoffs when they went to Washington, when they went to New Orleans. He was very much just a personal protector for Brady, just an extra blocking tight end somebody to take the edge off what were some really good pass rushes they faced early in the playoffs 
I think he had two catches total in the first three games, um, which is so selfless when you've been a, a you know a primary target in the past, and, and no one has caught more touchdowns from Brady than Gronk has. So it was really neat to see him get the payoff of being able to get the first two touchdowns in the Super Bowl and have that on such a big platform. It was neat because you know in doing it he got to a hundred career touchdowns with his second touchdown, and he and Brady got to break the record that Montana and Rice had as the most prolific touchdown combo in NFL playoff history. So really neat all around. If you see somebody who's already won three or four rings, you'd think it doesn't mean much, but I really think it meant a lot to both him and Brady to get another one here in Tampa. And those T-Mobile commercials they're doing now are tremendous. They are very <laughs> funny. They we're, really are. We're yeah. talking to Greg Almond of The Athletic, author of Champ Bay, which is available in the bookstores now or online. It's called Champ Bay, a tremendous book about with great pictures and stories about the Tampa Bay uh, season and the championship season. So a lot was talked about this year about the friction between Coach Arians and Tom Brady, uh, and that it was like buy-in and those things. We're, you know, we're going to talk. We talked to Justin Watson last week, and he's saying, "Well, it just took time for everybody to, to sort of feel each other out." But what, what did you see from covering the team? Whether this friction, because I think the national media tried to bring out that there was so much friction, but it seemed like from the local perspective, maybe not as much. It was just the national trying to create a story. Yeah, I mean, I think they definitely didn't have the immediate success they wanted to have. And I think there's a frustration that comes with that. But I never saw uh, any kind of chasm or any kind of real break or divide between the two of them. You know, I think people that have been around Tom Brady have been so used to having Bill Belichick, who doesn't really say very much of anything in press conferences. Um, so he isn't really publicly critical of his quarterback. He just doesn't say very much at all. So by contrast, Bruce Arians is at the opposite end of the spectrum. Bruce very much speaks his mind, is very blunt and honest and open and candid. Um, and I can see where for some people that might take a while to get used to. I think Tom Brady knew what he was getting into there. I think that's something that might have affected the people around him more than it did Tom. So it, it took a little while for them to be clicking um, as well as you want to. But, I mean, he had... I mean, Bruce Arians has coached a ton of great quarterbacks, and you can make a good case that Brady had the best year of any of them at 43 um, with no real offseason to get used to his teammates and a new offense, new coaches. So just a remarkable season all around, not only himself, but especially what he was able to do for the team around him. And I was at that game in November. We talked about this again when they were down 17 nothing in the first quarter, and, uh, and Tyreek Hill had 200 yards, which I've never seen ever happen. But from that moment, it seemed like then they just – I saw on the sideline Brady. I was right behind the bench, and he was screaming. I mean, not screaming, but he was like – it was more encouraging players. But from that moment on, it was just you – know, they, they really that – that sort of set the tone for them to come back. And what did you see at, you know, at the rest of that game and then the season? Were they, were they able to turn it around and then just win the rest of their games? Yeah, you can really point to that as a turning point. I mean, it was, it was probably their worst quarter of the year. Um, just not having anything to work on offense and not being able to stop them on defense. You're down 17 nothing, And to come back and make that a game, um, I think it, it kind of gave them a little bit of positive momentum a little bit going into their bye week. You know, they had lost three out of four, but at least they, they kind of found themselves there a little bit. Uh, this is a team that came back really well in games. They were down 17 to the Chargers and won. They were down 17 at the half to the Falcons and came back and won. And they could, couldn't pull it off that day in Kansas City, but I think in terms of giving them the confidence that they had in the Super Bowl. I think that the last three quarters of that game were just a good reminder for them of, of what they could do and what they are capable of doing when they when they do things right against even a talented team like the Chiefs were. And the one thing about defense that I noticed in the Green Bay game in the Super Bowl is their ability to, against Aaron Rodgers, now the whole comment was that they didn't go for it on fourth down and they kicked the field goal, but really the fact that twice – 
Aaron Rodgers had a chance within like the 10, 12 yard line to score a touchdown and, 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 he, and he had to kick two field goals. And then the Super Bowl, the same thing with Mahomes. So technically, you know, really gets the two best quarterbacks in the league. That defense, you know, within the red zone, you, you could put at his statue one, but they held, you know, five times these teams to field goals and not touchdowns. Oh, absolutely. That was absolutely the crowning achievement of this defense. I mean, they had done that before, but I mean, to do that in three straight games against Breeze and Rodgers and Mahomes, those are three Super Bowl MVP quarterbacks, and to end their seasons and eliminate them is not an easy thing. So, yeah, I felt like in Green Bay, it, I mean, in Green Bay, they didn't have quite the turnovers they had in some of the other games, but, you know, Green Bay was the number one goal to go offense in the NFL this season. They hit 90%. So, if they got it to where they had first and goal, 90% of the time they were getting touchdowns. And twice in that game, they held them and stopped them from getting a touchdown. The second time, obviously, you know, was kind of that weird fourth down decision for the field goal, like you talk about. But that's huge. I mean, that's, that's a four-point win every time you do that. And, and they showed it against Kansas City early on. If it's a 7 nothing game instead of 3 nothing, Kansas City has a lot more confidence. Um, you know, even at the half, it's 14-14 instead of 14-6 before that score right before halftime. It just... I think it gave the offense a little bit of leeway and really allowed them to take control of the game much more commandingly than they had if they had been given up touchdowns in the same position. And one last question is, like, where does Tampa Bay go from here? I mean, everyone's talking about, well, every team is dealing with this. I mean, there's very few teams that have cap room and no free agents, but to have Godwin, Levante David, Shaq Barrett, no Dominic Sue, plus the Gronkowskis and the Fournettes. I mean, they seem to have a lot of decisions to make, but what do you see in terms of coming back for next year? Because clearly, you know, the core of this team wants to run this again and, and repeat. <laughs> they're, they're, that's how they're talking. Yeah, they've got a ton of free agents. Um, they've got some, some room on the cap to get them in, but they've, they've got to convince a lot of people to come back and maybe take less than they could get elsewhere. Um, just to run through the names of all the guys that are unrestricted free agents, Chris Godwin, Dominican Sue, Shaq Barrett, Levante David, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown, Leonard Fournette, uh, Ryan Suckup, their kicker, just a ton of guys. And again, you hope that the experience of winning and, and the way this team won will make those guys want to come back for it. A lot of those guys are veterans or guys that have been in the league, um, made their money. So maybe you, you take less just to have the chance to, to do it again and have another magical season maybe a little closer to normal with, with crowds being better this fall if things go right. Uh, but, no, it'll be neat to see what they do, and they've got some tough decisions to try and make this team a winner again in 21 without giving up too much to, to sacrifice the franchise's future as well. And, I mean, Tampa Bay, the fans have sort of got – they really don't get the credit for being – I think they're pretty good fans. I mean, they've gone through some a lot of bad years, and people don't give them, like, you know, the, it's called the Northeast biased, whatever. Even the, but Miami Dolphin biased to some extent, too. So I think, I think the fans, if you saw them turn out for the boat parade, that was great. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be exciting to see what happens next year with the fans back and how they can galvanize around this team. Yeah, I felt like that parade was a reminder that they really hadn't been able to, to feel the, the warm embrace of this city around them. Just because, you know, all the playoffs, all three games were on the road. Um, you know, late in the year, two of the last three were on the road. So there just weren't that many chances to, to appreciate how much this city had rallied around this team. And hopefully, you know, if things are better in the fall, I think you'll see that. This would have been, if this was a normal attendance type season, they would have had sellout crowds all year long, you know, which is a big step for a team that was really kind of bottom five in attendance uh, the last couple of years when they were struggling as long as they did. So, yeah, it'll be neat to think that if they can find the same success this, this coming season, it, it'll probably be a different experience for fans for sure. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on Ira Sports. I appreciate it. This is Greg Almond of The Athletic, author of Champa Bay, a great book that's available in bookstores, and also you can just order online, Champa Bay. So thanks a lot, Greg. I appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks guys so much. I really appreciate you. All have a good night. Great stuff there from Greg Allman of The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Allman, G-R-E-G-A-U-M-A-N. Great stuff from him. Um, Ira, let's go back because you got me a little thrown off here. So there's a, a delay in the Daytona 500. Well, this is great because this is perfect. It's set up for our show perfectly yeah. because you're running <laughs> well, you the race. There's a 16-car race, and, the, and and then there was a five-hour delay. So I'm sitting around. I mean, you talk about rain delays in baseball. I've heard for like an hour. We had a yeah. five-hour rain Dude, delay. What did you do? That's what everyone asked. I don't know. It seemed to go fast. I just walked back. I, I went to, first of all, I walked around to see exactly what the stands were. I had more time to walk around. And then I walked back. And then I was listening to the radio, tweeting out, texting, you know, stuff like that. And then I, so really it was just, I don't know. It went faster because you, you didn't know when it was going to start. So you just, it was anticipation that was going to come back. Everyone mm-hmm. said, are you going to go home? And I'm like, I've already been here for so long. I'm not going to drive back. Like I want to, and you were hoping it was going to run that night. Cause it was, it, every time you thought it though, there was like a point where it was like sunny and then they're going to start and then it just poured again. Florida. And then, yeah, Florida weather and that's what happened. But but you, eventually, some of the guys left, right? Some of the drivers. This was the funniest thing that some guys went and out and got like, uh, um, there were people that went out to, went and got food at their places. So I just thought that was just hilarious where they went out and got like, so some cars there were some cars were damaged. They actually were able to fly in parts for the cars. Now they're not That's allowed amazing. to work on it, but they were able to fly carts from their shops in Charlotte. Like the rumors that you know, with how with planes came in to try to fix these cars up to get them fixed, and because they, they couldn't work on them, but they needed they at least knew what the, the car needed, and they needed a special thing. And there's uh, so much logistics that go into racing that you don't think about. <laughs> no, no. I mean that was a, I think Chase Briscoe went to Panda Express. Well, these are all sponsors, so yeah. they showed them going to the and then Tyler Reddick went to Cheddar's, so they showed him driving around. But that was. <laughs> You know, I love how they try. And Daniel Suarez, like some of the drivers that were knocked out just went home. Like when the race started, they were back. They were at like the next race. They were all like, we're mm-hmm. done. We're finished. It's all over. And the fact that they have RVs there and the fact that they have trucks there, they're able to go back and, and do everything. So that was what I think was really easier for. Like you can't imagine, like you're thinking almost in golf, like when they have these rain delays, what did these golfers like rather just go to an RV and hang out in a, in a million dollar RV than going back to the player's lounge oh, or whatever. And so that's, they, I think they were doing that. And they were doing, some of these golfers were bringing on the tournaments where there were no fans they were actually bringing mobile homes with them so they could be there for covid reasons i like to I wonder if that's going to happen again like it would be just easier for these breaks for them to go there they can park uh, on my lawn for the honda if they <laughs> need, need a spot so what happened after the delay we've got just about maybe 10 minutes or so till we have to get to justin watson yes so it, it's much colder so the race they were raced under the lights the sparks are flying like everything you see on tv it's even more pronounced there i mean it was the fog is coming in and then what's happening is then people were like trying to fix the car so you're like looking at what cars were getting fixed what's not getting fixed. And then some cars were just wanted, like some cars were totally knocked out of the race. Then others were partially, they're like, we have to go run two more laps so we get credit for those laps because uh, then yeah. you pass like 10 other people because it gives you points. And then other cars like Martin Truex Jr. had lost his entire front. Like he's running around with nothing. Now, you have to run with a certain speed, like 160 miles an hour, but everyone else would run like 190. But still, some of these cars were trying to fix. So, so that was all going on in terms of what was happening. And then you have, the thing is like tw- there were 28 cars running left. So like 12 cars were, were knocked out totally of the race but only 23 were on the lead lap and then um then when they had that like they have a sprint so after like the first like 70 some laps there's like a sprint to see who gets the points like in cycling and, and denny hamlin won that first sprint and then there was uh then in the lap 112 uh there was another small little accident that christopher bell called but then in the uh 
Um, the next one, there was another sprint, like 123. Hamlin won that again. So it was interesting to see. The key thing was that uh, Denny Ham, there was Toyota cars, which is, I mean, I'm learning a lot. This, so I know the NASCAR <laughs> fans here are going to yell at me, but it seemed like there's a more, mostly Ford and Chevys, and there was only four or five Toyota cars uh, that were out there. And I think that's what hurt Hamlin because it's like he needed to get pushed from Bubba Wallace himself, Kyle Busch. Uh, they were, and, uh, and, uh, um, those guys were needed, and Christopher Bell. They, it was like they didn't work as well together when all the Fords and the Chevys were able to do that. But um, it was like, so then Hamlin had led 98 laps in the race. And Bubba, it was neat. at one point, Bubba Wallace uh, led the race. So that was exciting because you're the 23, Michael Jordan car, mm-hmm. all those things. It was just huge. And then there was almost near the end of the race, there was almost this huge wreck where uh, Kevin Harvick bumped Hamlin. And unlike that big rep, you could see where Harvick backed up and let Hamlin like steady himself and didn't want to have this, you know, another huge wreck. Huge wreck. And there was no... Um, that, it, that it, there was no caution. So they actually had with the 100, there's 200 laps in a race. At 170, they had to go all pit. And first the Fords go in, then the Chevys go in, and then the Toyotas go in. And this is where the whole race changed because Hamlin was like literally leading the entire, it seemed like almost the entire race. But when he came out, Wallace wasn't behind him. So the, the whole row of cars that you see on TV is coming. Now Hamlin's up, gutting up to like 190. So he's already, he just needs some push. So he's there, but his drivers, Wallace and Bush and, and, uh, and Bell weren't but we're, we're spread out too much. So the, the field just like passed him. He had no one behind him. And that's how he got then in 13th place. So he should have actually gone back. His pit stop was fast. Everything was done correctly. It's just that he needed someone to draft for to get order to get in. It's like, you know, when you see a line going through, like mm-hmm. you just need to get in line. <laughs> and then that Terry, uh, uh, Joey Logano took first place with Harvick and Kozlowski. So it was like one through five, four, six through eight Chevy, nine through 12 Toyota. And you saw you're waiting for Hamlin because he seemed to have the stronger car, but he just couldn't pass up there. So for the next, like, 30 laps, Logano is, like, um, leading the race, and you're just waiting for someone to make a move. And I'm listening to the radio. They're like, someone's moving. And it's like the anticipation where someone's – and they just literally went single file on the outside the whole time, which people don't like. They like to ride two wide, mm-hmm. three wide. And then finally at the at – the, uh, it was single five. You know, people said, by then, 190, 190th lap, everyone's going to make moves. No one made a move. Just stay there. And then at 199, the final lap, then it was a total un- mess where um, uh, Brad Kozlowski went in and, and tried to get past Logano. They're teammates. Like, they're on the same Penske team. And he bumped Logano. And Logano tried to block it, knocked it. And then Michael McDowell, who had run 385 races and had never, 358 starts, never won, 100 to 1 odds. <laughs> now, and the rule, this is why the rule, I'm like, I sat there for 12 hours. And I'm like, either Logano wins a race, Kozlowski wins a race, Harvick wins a race, Hamlin wins a race. McDowell never led the race the entire time. But they stop it right when they just said the flag goes up. Now, it was right on turn three. So there's turn three, turn four, then it's over. But they don't rush back to the line. Mm-hmm. So it's like the race was over. They, they called it right then and there. Like literally when they announced the race is over, they didn't know who the winner was because they had to figure out when they said the yellow flag or when the, when the yellow flag came out and what happened. And it's like so anticlimactic. It was so weird. And I yeah, want to tell you something. It was the fans all left. I mean, it was really at the end of the race. I did not. I mean, people must have been tired or whatever. I did not sense that whole excitement and everything like that. And it was just weird. I just did not like. I mean, I'm not. I think they really should race to the end. Like, I feel like there should have been a point where you race the end or maybe you clean up and have 
like, you know, two or three rat laps. But just to end it like that, I thought was just weird. It's like, as my joke is, that it's like if Tiger, Rory, and Brooks were all playing and they're going down to the 18th hole, and then someone said, oh, by the way, the closest to the pit on the 18 wins <laughs> and for, like, the Masters. You were running out of sunlight. So yeah, it's whoever's it's just, closest. It was to closest it. to the pin, but not even for them, but for some other guy wins closest to the pin. Mm-hmm. Like, forget the fact that Hamlin had the best car, Logano had the best car, and these other guys had the best car. Like, I didn't like that. And it was just, so I was, that that was sort of just weird in terms of what I saw. And you actually saw some information. Vegas was very happy about this result. The, the biggest bet at William Hill, and we had Neil Bogdanovich on last week, was a, was a, someone bet $100 on McDowell. So he won, uh, <laughs> so he won 100 to 1, he won $10,000. Besides that, that's all. Everyone, like, they Vegas made, made a fortune because of betting, I mean, 100 only the highest bet they had was $100 on this guy. Crazy. Yeah, not, not a bad day for uh, Vegas boogies. It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Just a, a few minutes till we get to Justin Watson of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Great interview with him. Um, so, Ira, you were obviously pretty busy this weekend, but for me, getting up, it was like deja vu. Jordan Spieth in the lead on a Sunday again, this time a two-stroke lead, and you just kind of knew he wasn't going to be able to close it out. Well, with again, it's just at least he's in the in the hunt now. And the yeah. fact that Daniel Berger was able to end up winning it, Daniel Berger, of course, here from uh, right, he went right to here. Dwyer High School, right, here. <laughs> right, right, right across the street from our yeah. station. But it was nice. He, Berger won the Colonial, comes back and wins this at Pebble Beach. Um, nice win for him. And it was one of those situations where you know when you when you hit an eagle to win it on the 18th, even though he needed a birdie to win, we need a birdie to win. You hit an eagle, you know, that's good. It, it was very cool to see him win. Um, he's he's a very likable guy and. It, if you look at him since the restart, he might be the best golfer in the world, but besides Dustin Johnson. Since they've come back, seven top tens. I mean, he's playing really good. Congratulations to Daniel Berger. Like Jupiter, Jupiter uh, native brings it home here. To and this weekend, the Genesis, I mean, remember, I've been talking about Genesis for the last four, you know, I've been, I think I've gone four or five years in a row yeah. to Genesis in LA. Now, there's no fans this year, but that's one of the semi like under the players tournament. It was, it's Tiger's tournament. It's, it's called the, you know, it's called the LA Open and uh, the field's going to be tremendous. It's it's really just like a, 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 you know, a major field almost. So it'll be exciting this weekend to watch on TV. And what about UFC? Because I know you're excited for this. Oh, I love that fight. Tomorrow, <laughs> Usman Gilbert Burns, we talked about it. Um, it was for the Walterweight title of the world. Usman has a lot in eight years, 16 fights. He and Burns have been best of friends. They train together. Finally, Burns beat Woodley to become the normal contender. Usman had to leave his own gym. The gym that he was like his gym. He left his gym and went to Colorado. And uh, they go and they fight. Why do they not want to see each other train? Well, Usman thought it was like, I don't want to be training with someone. Yeah, I'm going to fight like that. But this for the first round, Burns comes out and uh, hits Usman. And Usman just beat Masvidal, you know, in, in the fight island. But he hit Usman. And Usman, I've never seen him staggered in the last number of years two things, but then Usman then took control of that first round. Um, for Burns had the strategy of lying, sort of been on the ground, waiting for Usman to come in and was going to kick him every time he came, and Usman was able to get through to him. And then in the second round, Usman just had some of these jabs and knocks Burns out and knocked him down, and then, and then they had by technical knockout. But what a win for Usman. I mean, he's really... He's, he's one of the best fighters of all time, really, at this point. Mm-hmm. But it was because against Burns, the top competition was great. And he called out Masvidal again because Masvidal took a fight on, like, a day, two days' notice, flew over there, over there. So it'll be interesting to see what Usman. But anybody who gets a chance to see Kamara Usman fight, wow. I mean, he really makes the point that he's the, one of the best fighters in the history of the UFC. What about uh, Australian Open? <laughs> so real fast here <laughs> is that um, the point is that it looks like Djokovic got lucky. Even though he, he twisted his um, stomach, has an oblique strain, 
but he is playing Zarev in the quarterfinals, which I think he should easily win because I'm not hold on Zarev in terms of the sixth seed. But then he goes, he got very lucky because um, Theme lost. So now and it's Dimitrov versus Karatsov in the next other quarter. So really, I think Djokovic, you're going to see Djokovic in the final. But Nadal, he plays Tsitsipas in this quarterfinal coming up this week. And then, he, then he'll have to probably play Medvedev. So it's good. Then, then, then that's going to be hard for Nadal. But then, you know, hopefully Nadal, Djokovic in the final at 3 in the morning. This is the, the week where I, <laughs> you know, I'm watching. They start at 10 at night and they run till all throughout the night. So it's like the time where I'm getting real tired. And then on the women's side, uh, you have Serena versus Halep. Uh, Serena's 10 seed, Halep's a 2 seed. It's going to be great in the quarters. And the winner then plays Osaka, Sonomi Osaka, in the semifinal. And that, that's going to be – so I'm, I'm the Australian Open this week is, as expected, going to be a great tournament if you can watch it in the middle of the night. Yeah, and you're missing well, – I'll be up with you. So. Okay. No, you're <laughs> not. You're not. I get a kid now. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, this is my prime Just time have, now. Right. Have the kid watch – have your son watch the fight. Well, I took the in the, um, the Gonzaga game last week too. because I was like, well, I'm up. <laughs> you had recommended it at 11 o'clock at night. Let's go to Justin Watson now here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 959 106.9. We're glad to have Justin Watson, wide receiver for the world champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Congratulations, Justin, on your great win, and thanks for coming on Iron Sports. Hey, thank you guys, and thanks for bringing me on the show. It's, it's been such a fun uh, couple weeks. Tell us a little about that boat parade yesterday. I mean, the, from last week. Um, seems <laughs> it got a little crazy. At least the Lombardi Trophy is still above ground. And not, they weren't going to have to send a submarine to try to find it from the bottom of the Tampa Bay Bay. Oh, man, it was too much. You know, they, uh, we had to do a boat parade to keep things socially distant, um, so we couldn't do the bus parade. But I, mean, I think that boat parade was even better than any, any bus parade I've seen um, you know, we were just totally blown away. We didn't know that any uh, other boaters were going to be out there. So to see, I mean, there had to be a hundred other boats around us, behind us, uh, cutting in and out, throwing footballs back and forth to us, and and then uh, you obviously saw Tom throw to Cam Braid, and man, that was that was a scary throw. I've seen Tom thread the needle a few times, but I don't think there's any throw uh, scarier than that one that I've seen all year. Were you on the boat that he was throwing it to? Like, would you been nervous if he was throwing it to you? That would have been a lot of extra pressure, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm always happy to be on the receiving end from Tom, but, uh, man, that, I, that was Cam Bright uh, who secured that one. He's got maybe the best hands on the team, so it was a good person to toss it to. Well, we started, I interviewed you, I guess it was last January before the national championship game between LSU and Clemson. And, uh, and so it was like, there was a rumor that Brady was coming, but then he actually did. And that was the excitement. So just talk about in terms of what it was like to be a wide receiver on the team with, with a Tom Brady throwing it to you and, and what he, when he, the moment he, you know, you heard about him and, and what he brought to that team. Yeah, it's been a crazy 12 months since the last time I talked to you. I know the last time we spoke about, um, you know, would Tom Brady potentially come, and I thought, uh, no way. I thought there's no way he was coming down. Um, you know, it just seems surreal for a guy like that to ever leave New England. You know, he talked about it. You know, he was married to New England for 20 years and the same people and same staff, same uniform, and so you never thought he could play anywhere else. Um, so when we signed him, I think the first thing he brought was just a belief. Um, you know, there, there used to be a sign that hung up on a facility that said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way, you're right. And I think that's winning and losing the NFL. You know, a lot of teams come into the game and aren't sure if they can beat the Bucks, aren't sure if they can beat the Chiefs. And they've lost the game before they even step on the field. But when we got Tom in the offseason, we started working out with him. We knew, hey, this guy knows how to win. 
and we got him, we got a chance. And so I think he, first and foremost, just brought a belief, and then he knows what it takes. You know, from the first time we threw um, back in May, you know, he had started coaching. He started the process. You can tell he's been through the process. He was very, uh, very nice, uh, just wanted to make everyone comfortable, wanted everyone to feel like he was approachable. Um, those first couple throwing sessions, and then each month it would build. Each month it got a little bit more serious to the point where we were in December, January, February. You know, we knew there was time that there no no more mistakes were uh, were allowed, and and we couldn't hold anything back. And and uh, so it was just really cool to see him set the pace um, really for our whole offense this year. Yeah, and then there's always that comment that people say, well, he's 43 years old, he doesn't have the arm strength. I mean, you're someone who's probably caught more balls from him in the past year than, than almost anybody. <laughs> I mean, tell us about his arm strength and the, and the doubts. I mean, from my perspective, it seems like he's throwing the ball harder than he's ever thrown. But, but what's your opinion of his, of, his, of his questions, any questions they have about his arm strength? Well, that's what I thought was so cool to see. I think he threw the ball down the field and had more 30-plus yard completions that he's probably had in the last 10 years um, playing in our offense. And I'm telling you, there's there's something to that TB12 sports. And uh, his, his uh, trainer, Alex Guerrero, um, you know, he opened up a TB12 sports location here in Tampa. And he let all the uh, – anyone on the team that wanted to go could, could go there for free. And so we, we went the whole year, pretty much all the receivers and the tight ends. And, uh, man, I mean, I think it was the first year Mike Evans played um, – in every game of a season, and it just was amazing seeing how fresh we were for the Super Bowl. So, like I said, seeing how hard he works, uh, you know, on the field, off the field, with his trainer, um, it's incredible what he does. But man, I'm telling you, there's something to that TB12 method. <laughs> That's great. And you started the year out great. You had two catches against in the week two against Carolina for 48 yards, and then in week four against the Chargers, you had four catches for 40. So you had to you you know you started out running because you had injuries. To Evans was injured, Godwin had some injuries, and there was no Antonio Brown at the beginning of the year. So you played a key role in some of those early wins in the season. Yeah, it was. You know, that's what I keep thinking about it. How how lucky I am. Um, you know, getting to start two games on a team that went on to win the Super Bowl and. And so, uh, like I said, in those first couple of weeks, I did what I love and, and receiver, I played receiver, caught a lot of passes. And then after we signed Antonio, um, you know, it's, that's what, it, what makes football so great. It's a team sport. And, and so, you know, he started playing a lot more at receiver and I started playing more just uh, you know, my role on special teams. And so, uh, you know, certainly I love playing receiver, but more than anything, it was uh, awesome to get a win uh, and, and win in the Super Bowl. And so, like I said, for me, uh, having to adapt my role and, and become more of a special teams guy um, once we signed Antonio was uh, was a no-brainer. Well, it's no shame to have to take a step back when, when Antonio Brown comes in, who has uh, you know, led the league at receptions five, the past five years. But uh, that was – talk about when he came in, like, you, you know, that was weird. You bring someone like Antonio Brown in in the middle of the year with a team that it's just it, – it, you're not really used to playing anyway. It must have been just a, a challenge to get him integrated into the offense. Yeah, well, you know, it was just uh, he kind of came in, and it was right when we hit a little bit of a rough patch in the middle of the season. You know, I think his first week was uh, when we played the Saints uh, the second time here at home, and you know we lost, you know, thirty-eight to three, and uh, we got blown out, and then we ended up losing three out of four. So there was a big moment in the season where that's you know the wind started shifting. A lot of people were saying, "Hey, you know, maybe it's going to take two years for this to finally work out." You know, maybe this isn't year and uh, 
that's what it, what's hard, you know, as a football team is it's such a long season that you have to, you know, deal with the ups and the downs. And so we just stuck to each other. Antonio kept learning the offense, kept getting better, and um, and he was great. He was nothing but professional in, in his time here, and made some really big catches down the stretch um, on the Super Bowl run. Yeah, and I I noticed that. I mean, in terms of the wide receivers, I mean, some games Evans played a role, and and even in the Super Bowl, he only they said only caught one pass, but he had he drew three pass interference penalties, three that were very important. And then how Godwin played, Scotty Miller came up with some big catches. You mentioned Cameron Brake, you have Rob Gronkowski, yourself. It's like all of you played a role. It was definitely a receiving core by by team rather than just one person who's going to catch the ball a hundred uh, catches for the season. Absolutely. I think in the past couple of years, we've had receivers put up crazy numbers. You know, we had two uh, thousand yard receivers last year. Chris had something like 10 touchdowns last year. And, and so we've had receivers that put up huge stat numbers in the past, but we've never made the playoffs. We've never won. And so I think when we finally got to this year, it was, hey, we're all in on winning. You know, if, if Mike ends up with a thousand yards, great. Um, and we're happy that he got it. But at the end of the day, Everyone in our offense and our receiver room was committed to whatever it takes to win. So that's what was cool. You never saw Mike complain. You never saw Chris complain. You know, those are guys that on any other team, um, you know, would have seven, eight, nine, ten targets a game. And it was just cool. You know, Mike would end the game with two catches, two receptions, two yards, uh, and two touchdowns. And then you wouldn't hear a word out of him. Uh, so it's just great seeing a future Hall of Famer like Mike. Um, be so selfless and, and set the pace for our offense. And it must have been also challenging um, in terms of dealing with the COVID and all the restrictions. And the idea is you couldn't have the extra practice and do all those things, the limitations. And that's what I think when you mentioned earlier about it, people thought it would take two years. It's like, well, you didn't really have the proper training camp. You didn't have the proper off-season workouts. But it's amazing that you guys were able to come together so fast, uh, quickly, in, in a cohesive unit uh, to be able to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's funny just how mindset changes things and everyone else was thinking that COVID was going to be um, something that hurt us, that would put us behind. But uh, from the very beginning, the first time we threw with Tom and that with Tom, you know, he said, Hey, we're going to use this to our advantage. He got everyone. He found a field that we could all work out at twice a week. Um, you know, we were throwing most of the off season. He was already telling us things that he likes. He doesn't like um, on certain routes. And so, we thought between getting the extra work in the off season and uh, just staying committed to being healthy all year that COVID could actually be a, a benefit uh, to us. And it's just, it was cool. Man. I remember week two against Carolina, I ran a shake route um, down near the goal line and Tom brought up something that I did that I, we hadn't talked about literally since June when we threw a, a high school field <laughs> in Tampa. It was the last time we talked about it. And I just remembered it and, and, did it the way he wanted to and it was just cool finally you know you seeing a real moment where work in the offseason translated right to results in the field wow that's great we're talking to justin watson wide receiver for the super bowl champions tampa bay buccaneers uh, you're also a champion you're an ivy league champion at penn tw- two years so you're now you're a three-time champion um but uh and in terms of the fact, I was the primetime game Monday, November 23rd against the Rams, losing 27-24. Then I was at the game you lost to the Chiefs, 27-24. But I, I've always said that, that it was in the, after the second quarter, I was sitting right behind the Bucks bench, and it just seemed like 
Tom and the and the coaching staff and your players were like, you're down in the game, you're losing. It was like 17 nothing in the first quarter. Tyreek Hill had 200 yards. And you're just like, we're not going to get blown out of this game. We're going to fight back in the game. And I think that was literally not just the, the bye week, but it was that that second quarter was the turning point of the season. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, we got in at halftime and – we had a decision to make. Are we just going to lay down and, and say this game's over, or are we going to fight? Because um, that's what we always said all year, that no matter what, we were going to keep fighting. And so when we came running back and uh, ended up only losing to by three to the Chiefs uh, right before the bye and really had a chance to win it at with our last uh, offensive possession, uh, we knew, hey, we could beat anybody. If, if we played about as bad as we could possibly play for the first quarter, giving up 200 yards to Tyree Kill, uh, didn't have a first down the whole first quarter. If we can overcome that and almost beat these guys, then we can beat anybody. And so it's just like funny, like how you said, you know, a loss um, can give you that type of confidence, you know, just because of how we responded in the second quarter. And we knew we could come back on anybody, and we had to do that a few times uh, down the stretch to get into the playoffs. And the gauntlet in your playoffs from, well, Washington was the first game, but then to go uh, to play New Orleans at New Orleans, win that game, and then you go to Green Bay uh, and face Aaron Rodgers. And you're used to the cold weather. You grew up in Pittsburgh. You went to the University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. But it was, you know, people were writing Tampa off saying, well, you're not, you know, the team is a, is a Florida team. They're not ready for the cold temperatures. But you seem to adapt well, and, and that's where you played. So the team played great in that game. Yeah, it's funny. You said I'm, I'm – from Pittsburgh, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I think I'm a Florida boy now. I like <laughs> I like the sunshine and the 80 degree weather for football. But I think uh, well, you mentioned that Saints game. That was that was the really the big game for us. Um, you know, they're a team that's had our number the last three years, especially the two years that BA has been here. And you know, we were 0 and 4 against them in the last uh, in two seasons in the regular season, and and really none of those four games were all that close. And uh, so that was a team that. Hey, we really got to prove to ourselves that if we could beat these guys, we could beat anybody. And uh, so just to see the way that we came out and played, the defense uh, with turnovers, offense making plays when they had to, and, and just a team effort, that was the one that once we won that one, uh, we knew we were going into a team, Green Bay, that we had a great game plan for uh, during the regular season and executed it again. And then, uh, man, the, just too many things came together in the Super Bowl, you know, between – uh, playing at home, everyone being healthy, getting the whole team back, um, and just man, it, it's just such an advantage. Us driving ten minutes down the street, playing a stadium that we've played in, uh, you know, for the last few years for me and, and for a lot of our guys longer than that. I mean, a lot of people during the year they made it. They made the point that. Uh... Uh, Coach Arians, Coach Leftwich, and Tom Brady weren't on the same page, and they kept saying, "No, we're on the same page, and, and we're, we're working through it. It's a process." And of course, they were right. I mean, you, you definitely were on. But it was like, did you hear that? You know, the noise outside where people saying, "Oh, they're not on the same page. They, it's the wrong situation. It's the wrong system. He can't play this way." I mean, it was like you must have heard those things. And, and how did the team like react to the fact that people were saying things which you, of course, didn't didn't have, wasn't true. Yeah, well, it was, uh, I guess, things like that that you hear from the outside, um, you can put away to the side easily because you see it every day in practice. And so I think you you probably saw it even uh, as you know, a fan or reporter watching. Um, our, the first few weeks we ran the same offense that we ran the year before that BA's always ran. And once Tom fully knew our offense and we started getting comfortable with uh, what we were doing, you know, slowly each week, you know, there'd be one or two more plays that Tom would add in. 
know, a few things during the two-minute drill that Tom liked to do that were good ideas. And so you just saw each week we'd add something. Each week uh, we'd met Saturday night before the game, and Tom would have all the offensive skill players just talking about, hey, hand signals. We might not use them this week, but just each week we're going to talk about them because one day we're going to know we're going to need to use them. And so it was. Uh, he had a plan the whole year, and he was installing things with us each week on Saturday nights. And then uh, eventually you'd see them show up in the game plan. And then, you know, one day, you know, one Sunday you'd be looking at Tom and he'd give you a signal for the first time that I'm not even sure the coaches knew about. <laughs> and, you know, you'd, you'd run a, a new route or a hot route. And then, uh, you know, in the film room, they'd, you know, you'd have to explain, hey, you know, Tom, Tom gave me, uh, told me to do this. And that, that got me out of a lot of, uh, lot of jams with the coaching staff this year, just saying, hey, Tom, Tom says to do this. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I went and I, I went to the Super Bowl. I drove there without a ticket, and uh, luckily a friend, like at five thirty, got me guys that I have a ticket. I was like so excited, so I sat behind the Bucks bench. And what I noticed was just the supreme confidence. I sat between Vita Vea behind where Veda was sitting and, and Sue and the rest of the defense. And I just you did not look like a team that was facing the, the greatest offense in the history of the NFL and, and Patrick Mahomes and all those. It, it seemed like you guys had a plan, on at least on defense, and knew exactly what you were going to do. And, and, and it was just after every time the defense came back to the bench, it was just, we know what we're doing. We're confident. It was almost, I was comparing it to Ali uh, when Will Smith played the character Ali when he was fighting George Foreman and Zaire. It was like, I just know what I'm doing. We have this under control. Um, did you sense that during the week before the Super Bowl in terms of the overall confidence, like you had this figured out and you knew what you had to do to win the game? Yeah, so actually, um, you know, we had two of our starting safeties uh, go down the week of Green Bay. And so towards the end of the stretch, I was actually learning um, our defense and, and how to play safety just in case, you know, those two safeties couldn't dress that I could be, you know, a reserve guy and, and play uh, special teams and, and back up at safety. And so I got to sit in on a lot of those defensive meetings. And, man, I, we just got to give uh, a lot of credit to Todd Bowles, our you know, defensive play caller. He, he put so much time into this Kansas City uh, game plan, and he had us in calls that, you know, just uh, – he, he made it so easy for us. The keys – you know, even for a guy that had been playing safety for two weeks at that point, I felt like I was confident to go in and know what I was supposed to do and felt like I had a good idea of what they were going to run in every formation they were in, wherever they put Tyreek Hill, have an idea of what he was doing. So he just he just did a great job of preparing the defense and uh, putting our best players in positions to make plays. Uh, that's amazing. So here we're, we're – um... You to let that let our listener understand you're you're a wide receiver on the team and they're putting you in for the biggest game of the year as a potential defensive player. That's amazing to think that. Uh, but of course, when you had the year of COVID and with injuries and everything, that was something. But that's uh, that's tremendous that you actually were 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 practicing with the defense and getting ready for the game. Yeah, so it was. Uh, you know, I guess if you make enough tackles uh, on special teams at receiver, then they might start trying you out uh, all over the field. But yeah, it was it was a really just cold experience and opportunity getting to learn a little bit of the other side of the ball, and uh, and then that way, I mean, I felt like I knew every play that was happening in the game. I knew what was going on offense. I knew what was going on on defense, special teams. So it was uh, it was really cool experience for me.
And it seemed like during the game, it, it, the team had so much composure. Uh, it, again, I was there and I saw the Chiefs. I mean, the one point I saw them yelling at the referees and yelling at themselves. And, and Tom sometimes I think would do quick snaps and just snap the ball when he saw the the, the Chiefs players weren't even facing the, the the field. They were like yelling at a referee. It just seemed your comp- the the Bucks composure was just uh, there was no everything seemed just I would say composure, confidence. Those are uh, adjectives I would describe to the team. I think I totally agree with you, and I think a lot of that comes from us leaning on guys like Tom and Gronk, guys who have been there. You know, most of the Chiefs players. You know, this was a lot of the same team that played in the Super Bowl last year, and for us, we just had a few players that had ever made the playoffs, let alone playing the Super Bowl. But uh, Tom and Gronk really just uh, we leaned on them a lot, and uh, Tom, and he's just a gamer. You know, he <laughs> he finds things like quick snaps uh, to give us an advantage. You know, even that touchdown that Antonio Brown ran. You know, I remember watching and I was like, wow, I don't know. I don't even know what route that was. You know, I, I feel, you know, I had been playing safety for a week. I was like, did they already install a new route? <laughs> and then he gets off to the sideline and Antonio's eyes are huge. And he's like, man, Tom in the huddle, he just said, get open and I'll throw it to you. Just, just get open, run whatever route you want and I'll throw it to you. And so that wasn't, we didn't even have a route called there. That was just Tom telling Antonio, like in the backyard, hey man, get open. And I'm going to throw you a touchdown if you get one-on-one coverage. And that was the play that I saw Tyrone Matthew just, he, as in, he was yelling at the referee about the previous play. And so he was a step slow. I mean, he, you could see where he came up on Brown, but that was where, I mean, I guess that's, he saw that Matthew was just yelling at everybody and not paying attention. So that was a great on his part. But uh, when you just mentioned Gronkowski, and I would, my listeners would kill me if I didn't bring this up, what was it like to play with Gronk for a year? Because that, I mean, definitely a character. And, and when he came through big time in the Super Bowl. Yeah, man, he it's just he's a guy that's just so fun to to be around. Uh whether practice game, off season, uh, you know, he just he's in I think in his ninth year and he just plays like, you know, with the passion and the love for the game like he's a rookie. You know, he just he wanted to know all the guys. Um and like I said, just getting to know him as a as a person, he's exactly like you'd expect him to be from the TV personality, you know, he's goofy, he jokes, he messes with people. Um, and so it was, uh, man, it's, it's been a pleasure playing with Gronk. And, man, we really hope he's back for another run next year. That's great. That's great. Well, Justin, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're exhausted. It was an exhausting season, a, an exhausting couple of weeks. But thank you a lot for coming on. And uh, so what do you do for your off season? Do you go, where do you go to train? And how do you get ready for the next season to come back and, and doing everything? Yeah, so uh, it, it'll be a lot of the same, I think, from last year. You know, we're still waiting on uh, whether or not OTAs are going to happen or not. They got canceled last year. Um, so I guess we're just waiting on the NFLPA and, and the NFL trying to figure out if there's a way that we can safely participate in OTAs. So it's just a matter of uh, getting ready and whether we got to be ready uh, in the middle of April or if we got to be ready for a training camp come July. Wow, that's great. Well, Again, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, it was it's just exciting. Uh, to, to I, I saw two of your games. I saw, I saw both the Chiefs games. And uh, just a tremendous uh, experience to be there at the Super Bowl. And I'm sure being as you with this team and being involved with it. So, again, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank Lo- you. Love talking to uh, Justin Watson here on Iron Sports. Great guest and a little insight into the Super Bowl. You probably didn't hear anywhere but here. So, Ira, before we wrap it up, we were talking about 
staying up late, got a lot to do. You know, you've got tennis to watch. I've got a newborn. But the NBA is going to keep us busy, especially if you're a Miami Heat fan with these late games. Uh, it's time to play. They're 11-15 and 15 tonight at the Clippers. Then they go Wednesday at Steph Curry, Golden State. Then at Sacramento, which is a great young team. Tyler Halliburton, you've got to see him play. Then Saturday on National Tubs and ABC at the Lakers. And then Monday at Oklahoma City. These are all games they could lose. I mean, they're 11-15, and after this, they could be 11-20. and 20. Um, They're going to probably be underdogs at every one of these games. So if the Heat, this is the time for the Heat. I mean, they made it to the NBA Finals last year, but it's time. They're healthy now, and it's time to start playing some basketball. It sure is. We are always rooting for the Heat here on I Run Sports. We are out of time, though. I want to thank so much uh, Justin Watts and also Greg Allman of The Athletic for joining us. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, I Run Sports.